Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted path. Fortunately, ScreenCraft are here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures by your favorite writers such as J.J. Abrams and Tony Gilroy, to a daily blog with amazing advice. It's also no secret that ScreenCraft have the best screenwriting competitions around. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, Lionsgate, Universal, Blumhouse, Hulu, the list goes on and on of places that ScreenCraft winners have sold scripts to or have got staffed on shows at. So if you're an aspiring writer, don't wait to check out ScreenCraft at ScreenCraft.org today. Follow the link in today's show notes to find out more and get your writing dreams started. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. I'm your host, Al Horner, and this week on the show, it's 30 years to the day since a grouchy weatherman named Bill Connors woke up and found himself reliving the same day over and over and over again. I'm talking, of course, about Groundhog Day, a comedy that's timeless in, well, more ways than one. On today's episode, I'm joined by the film's writer, the fantastic Danny Rubin, as we delve into his initial screenplay for the iconic time loop farce which became one of the most beloved comedies of its generation. Danny wrote the film as a spec script in the early 90s. It soon found its way into the hands of Harold Ramis of Ghostbusters and Caddyshack fame, and the pair began developing the script together. From there, Groundhog Day went through a number of changes as the pair decided to lean into the comedic potential of the premise and lean away from some of the darker elements of Danny's original vision for the movie. It kind of goes without saying that all of their hard work fine-tuning this story paid off. Groundhog Day was released to rave reviews in May 1990, with Danny going on to win a BAFTA for Best Original Screenplay. Today, three decades on, not only does the story live on as a stage musical that Danny worked on, there's also the small matter of films and TV series like Palm Springs, Russian Doll, and The Incredible Edge of Tomorrow, all of which took Groundhog Day's time loop concept and ran with it in exciting genre-based directions. In the conversation you're about to hear, Danny tells me how strange it was seeing Groundhog Day become this shorthand for whenever something's repetitive or on loop. We discuss the vampire fiction that served as the screenplay's surprising early inspiration, and why Weatherman was the perfect profession for Phil and his detached, icy personality. There's some really interesting stuff too on Danny's original ending for the movie, which saw the character Rita beginning her own time loop starting on February 3rd. A huge thank you to Danny for being such a great guest, and a massive thank you also to our Patreon community for helping make this episode possible. Script Apart is made by two people and two people alone, me and my producer Cam. So your support on Patreon is so valuable to us as an independent operation. We're hoping to go weekly in 2023. And the more support we have on that platform, the closer all those goals get to becoming a reality. Head to patreon.com forward slash script apart if you'd like to get involved there. Okay, that's the promotional stuff all out of the way. Let's get to it. This is the incredible Danny Rubin discussing the first draft secrets of Groundhog Day. Thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner. 
Produced by Camille Demac. Okay, campers, rise and shine. I'm joined by Danny Rubin. Danny, how are you today? It's a pleasure to have you with us. Just wonderful, Al. Thanks for having me. So I hope you don't mind me sharing with listeners the fact that this conversation is actually a few years in the making. I first contacted you about coming on Script Apart in, God, I think it was late 2020. And uh, yeah, you were incredibly friendly, incredibly gracious, but you had to politely decline because Groundhog Day having the place in our culture that it has, you're invited to talk about this movie a lot. And it sounds like you have to decline a lot of those invitations to ensure that you're not caught in a loop, <laughs> similar to Groundhog Day itself, constantly reliving your time on this movie. How lovely a testament is that to the film's remarkable staying power, that that's a problem that you have to contend with 30 years on? Oh, it's not really a problem, but it is something I, that does come up every year. Um, I'm delighted. I'm delighted to, that I haven't been forgotten yet. The, the <laughs> dustbin of history isn't isn't completely done with me. And what do you think it was on a story level, Danny, about Groundhog Day that kind of has helped earn that longevity? Um, there are obviously kind of wonderful performances. It's really well directed. I could give you a long list of jokes that st still kill me each time I watch it. But um, yeah, on, on like a thematic level, on a story level, do you think it kind of tapped into a frustration or a feeling, anything that had kind of gone, uh, you know, underverbalized in our culture? And, and is that part of the response to this film and the fact that people keep returning to it? It seems to pass through different cultures. I know there was a time when the military seemed to feel like it's Groundhog Day in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um and the politics, every time one of these political seasons comes up, or it's just one long season now, it, it feels to people like Groundhog Day. I think the, the movie gave name to a feeling that people have had for a long time. We just hadn't had a way of expressing it before, or not a common way of expressing it. And this phenomenon of feeling stuck in some kind of a repeating pattern is 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 a very common human feeling um it's just there just hasn't been a movie a popular culture thing that has brought it forward and given it a name so now people have a way of referring to that yeah that's such an interesting point that there really aren't many movies that have influenced our vocabulary and entered the english language as an idiom the way that groundhog day has mm -hmm. I, was, I was trying to think of the others and i guess like Sophie's Choice is one that's become like a shorthand for whenever anyone's facing an, an impossible decision. Um, I mean, I literally heard someone in a cafe use Groundhog Day the other week while okay. complaining about their work, you know, being the same shit over and over again. That must have been strange for you to observe as the guy who kind of dreamt up this story and helped deliver it to the world, the way it's ingrained itself in, in our lexicon. Well, at first it was sort of a rare every now and then somebody would refer to it and everyone I knew would send me links. Um, <laughs> Look what you did. Look what you started. Um, and then after a few years, it was just too common. No, it was like just too common. There was no reason to let me know anything new had happened because uh, everyone was saying it all the time. I guess um, it, it feels, it, it's sort of a good thing. It, it sort of makes me go, ah, oh, I, I am in the world. I, I participated and <laughs> made some kind of a difference anyway. But um, it, it is true that people use it to refer to the bad part of a repeating situation, and they tend not to use it as a 
fulcrum to get out of their repeating situation the way <laughs> Phil Connors did. Uh, I mean, some people do, but for the most part, it's a negative thing when they're referring to it. <laughs> and I guess that's just the first the awareness happens. And then after you can choose to change something or not. Yeah. Yeah. So to, to kind of get into its development, I know that you pieced together the idea for Groundhog Day from two different screenplays that you were trying to get off the ground. Um, one concerned immortality and the number of lives it would take someone who's kind of perpetually immature to finally be able to grow up. Uh, the other was a brief outline that you'd scribbled down somewhere about a guy who wakes up to find every day the same. Immortality, inability to grow up, um, loneliness too. There's a lot of loneliness in the first draft of Groundhog Day. When you look back, was there anything that you were going through in your own life that you think uh, may have influenced this, that may have drawn you towards these big, heavy themes, big, heavy feelings? Um, nothing. Uh, as far as I can, I mean, let the <laughs> future shrinks, you know, go through my notes and figure out what I really meant. <laughs> um, I know that when I had the idea, it was something that that seemed like it could go in a lot of different directions including a very dark a very dark path and i was thinking a david lynch film because it, it did feel like it could go very very dark but i had just had a baby i was sort of starting on the screenwriting career after about 10 years of kicking around for different kinds of writing jobs and um I was feeling positive, and so I chose a positive direction. You know, I, I still stayed true to the concept, but I didn't dwell on the dark part. That was just the middle section. And I, I think that was something going on in my life that made me take a a friendly, happy choice as opposed to wanting to indulge. I mean, it takes a long time to write a screenplay, and if the whole thing is dark and depressing, you're going to be dark and depressing. <laughs> that just was not where I was headed. So in that way, it did. In terms of growing up in Arrested Development, I think that's more like people I knew rather than anything self-reflexive. I kind of am an even-keeled person and always have been. And uh, uh, my immaturity seems well in control. <laughs> it, it does not seem, you know, I'm not in denial about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I had actually wondered whether the act of writing itself was an inspiration for Groundhog Day at all, because, well, writing can be a repetitive, monotonous practice, right? And, uh, you know, the vocation demands of us that you're in the same room every day, uh, often with a feeling that you're kind of going nowhere fast. Um, I'm, I'm revealing a lot about my own relationship with writing here. <laughs> I, I think I read uh, that you're actually a pretty quick writer, though, so perhaps it doesn't apply. From, from what I understand, you outlined Groundhog Day in seven weeks and knocked out the script in one. Um, have I got that right? Was was that the timeline? Yep. Yep. I mean, if you ever read that draft, you would say, yeah, I get it. That's just really <laughs> sloppy. <laughs> but the seven weeks, you know, that's the fun part, brainstorming and coming up with ideas and see how they create some kind of a flow. Um, but then writing it, it's like pushing the baby out. You know, it's time to get it done. You put in long hours and and uh, just write, 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 no matter how much it hurts, and get that thing out. And then once it's out, you can look at it and polish it up. 
that's what I did. I don't always write quickly. And I, I think in the business, I'm not known as somebody who writes quickly. I, I I start off quickly and get a lot of ideas there. And then it takes me a long time to figure out how it all works dramatically. So you have this spec script, which um, you'd sent it on, on, on Groundhog Day, this existing holiday, because uh, you loved the idea of it being kind of a movie that could be returned to on the same date every year, the way that we return to like it's a Wonderful Life and a Charlie Brown Christmas, that kind of thing. Then it gets optioned. Harold Ramis comes on board and it goes through a good couple of rewrites. The finished film, I'd say, is still very much your story, but there's a bit of a kind of, there's a greater emphasis on the comedy of it all. Is, is that fair to say? Like, how do you sum up the tonal evolution that the movie went through from first draft to the finished film? I, I think that my original script... I've heard it described as more indie, and I think it was just my naivete at the time. I kind of figured if there's a movie I've ever seen ever, then something I wrote that was similar would be able to be embraced. You know, it's a possibility of getting made because these have been made before. But the kind of movies I was thinking about were more like the Ealing Studios, small English, funny, um, clever entertainments. And the way I built the story, it was built on probably on my experience with sketch comedy. Um, and so there were a lot of montages and little pieces of things. And I figured out how you could move the story forward, even though it's repeating. Um, and I got that stuff in there. And it, also there was the romance with Rita and all that. But it was very much Phil's story. And I think... When Harold was done with it, um, he had done a couple of things that helped it take on a shape that uh, Hollywood could embrace, um, including it, in many ways it, it uh, became Rita's story as well. And so it became a more even handed um, romantic comedy which it was not a genre of any kind before. <laughs> I mean, it was funny and dark and it had all those fun sequences in it, um, building it into a, a smooth comedy. And also there were there were some edges that I did not originally embrace, but Harold was able to like making it not just the, the, the day that Phil repeated, he made sure and made it the worst day of Phil's life. I, in sort of general way, had made it something that he was not fond of because he felt he was too big for the town and his career was too far along to be doing <laughs> these silly kinds of reports. So he felt bigger than the situation. And I think Harold embraced that idea and made it the worst day of his life. And what's the worst thing that you could do but repeat it? So in that way, it felt like a pitchable Hollywood idea and uh, smoothed out that way for him. Uh, the ending um, that he created was, as you would expect from a romantic comedy, I think, where everybody comes together at the end. Um, and in mine, I thought that was so um, inevitable that I wanted to play with it. And in many ways, I was playing with what I thought was a savvy audience that didn't need all the spoon feeding that Hollywood seemed to assume they needed. Um and so in, in my original one, I was subverting that romantic ending by having Phil finally wake up with Rita at the end and be 
as excited and satisfied as a person could be after <laughs> repeating the day so many times. But then it turns out that Rita is repeating February 3rd and she <laughs> sort of feels stuck with him. And so that they're at a different place in their lives. And it was really just a, oh, a clever little haha, you thought you got me, understood me, but I fooled you again. And it was that kind of entertainment. Um, and uh, ultimately in Harold's hands, you got the emotional satisfaction of having something that you've invested in and actually pay off. So yeah, there was there were a lot of very good decisions that happened after I was done with it. <laughs> well, you know, a great example of of that aversion to spoon feeding your audience is actually in the way your first draft begins, Danny. Um, so we begin, unlike in the finished movie, uh, we begin with Phil already in the time loop. We see him punching Ned. We see him acting really erratically, and and we don't really understand why. It's it's such a note of intrigue to begin the story on. It's a good few pages in before you explain uh, via voiceover what's happening, why this character is behaving in such a strange way. Why was that your original starting point? And um, can you remember how it came to change? Like, was it deemed more digestible for audiences to kind of experience this phenomenon with Phil as it happens to him for the first time? I guess like time loop movies weren't a thing prior to this one. So a movie like Palm Springs, which which of course does begin already in the loop, they can afford to begin that way, I guess, because audiences already have the shorthand of what a time loop is. Back then, you needed to explain that to filmgoers, I suppose. Well, the way I approached it, I, as I recall, I mean, you could have asked me 30 years ago, Al, but um, <laughs> so I might be making this up, but I didn't... Um, I felt like the time loop stuff was the fun. All the different things that you could repeat was the fun of the movie. And I didn't want to spend the entire first act setting up what we already know. Here's Phil. He's a despicable character. Um, <laughs> here's Rita. She's a nice person. You know, and you sort of go through the motions of just establishing who they are. I kind of thought that was unnecessary. And I thought a sophisticated audience would be intrigued by um opening the the first act with him already repeating it and it isn't till the end of the first act that we we get it we understand why he knows why he slugs that guy and why he knows what people on the radio were saying and how he knows things and i used the voiceover as kind of a gentle help to the audience so that they didn't get lost um when i first met with harold we talked about taking getting rid of the voiceover and if you get rid of the voiceover, which I was fine with, you you need things to be a little bit clearer. And I also did was trying to avoid the reason that he got into the time loop. I thought it was I, I sat down when I first came up with the idea and I thought, OK, how does he get into the time loop? And I just started writing things down and, you know, up. A, a black hole, a, a, some space anomaly, a magical clock, um, Harold's contribution, the gypsy curse. All these things were just brainstorming. And while I was doing it, I was like, this is so arbitrary. It so doesn't matter. Maybe this isn't the point. The point isn't that he wronged the wrong person. He has to fix it. The problem is he's alive and he's stuck with this day and he's got to deal with it regardless of how he got there. And if he's spending the whole time trying to undo what was done, 
that takes away from the fun stuff of the movie, which is living. That's the part of the movie where you said there were two ideas and one of them was a guy repeating the day and the other one was uh, a person living long enough um, to perhaps longer than one lifetime as a way of finally growing up. Maybe some people just don't have enough time. So in order for it to be about a man's life and how he deals with the fact that he's stuck day after day, a delicious existential story, <laughs> I didn't want it to just to turn into a, a Saturday afternoon forgettable Hollywood story where it's all about undoing the curse or fixing the clock or finding the scientist or reversing the black hole. And I <laughs> I, I was thinking that if we, we started after it already began, then we didn't have to have the explanation. But Harold uh, kept every draft, he kept moving it closer and closer to the, the TV station in Pittsburgh before they leave on the adventure. And eventually you just jumped over how it happened. And that was a battle with the studio. The studio, mm. of course, wanted an explanation. Um, Harold seemed to have my back on wanting to keep that out of there. And at some point I just suggested, oh, just some fast moving clouds and kept talking about the blizzard thing. And if people want to think that's the magical element, let them. Yeah, I'd say there's there's definitely kind of a moral explanation to why Phil is caught in, in this time loop. Uh, this is a movie about arguably a cold man who opposes small town values and uh, he has to learn to appreciate those values. It's, it's only once he he learns a certain humility and the importance of human connection that he's able to break the loop. That's the arc that Phil has to go on in this story. Um, I guess that brings us quite nicely to Phil and, and the character of Phil. One thing I've always wondered about um, in regard to this story is why he's a weatherman. Like, obviously, there's there's a narrative reason to give him that profession. It's it's what gets him to the town. But it occurred to me uh, in kind of revisiting the film ahead of this conversation that. It's also a job that has a sheen of importance to it without too much importance. Like he's on TV, but he's, it, it's not like he's a serious news reporter and there's a slight perceived triviality to the role of a weatherman, which must be kind of torturous for a guy who thinks everything is beneath him and, and craves a certain big shot status. Was that all by design? Like how early on did you realize that weatherman was the perfect job for Phil? A lot of the ideas just fell into place quickly once I chose February 2nd. Um, I knew that it, whatever happened to Phil, he needed to be in a small town where you could feel claustrophobic and it gets old quickly. If he had been stuck in New York City, he could live many lifetimes within eight blocks and have a fine life. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when I picked February 2nd and I was just trying it out. I remembered the ceremony that takes place there as a small town ceremony. And um, I figured he came from out of town. He's not from there. So who would come to the ceremony um, watching a groundhog see or not see his shadow? And my first thought was a, and actually in the first draft, it really was a local news person, just somebody covering local news stories. It could have been a bake-off or, uh, you know, something, some silly, not important <laughs> activity <laughs> that, again, he feels is beneath him. Um, 
And I think Harold just just started saying weatherman and saw him as a weatherman. And that brought in all the wonderful um, resonances of having somebody who supposedly can predict what's going to happen and gets it very, very, very wrong. Uh, so I went with the weatherman thing and it made sense, but it could have been a local news guy, too. Hey, this is Al, just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. If you've written a script and are wondering what step to take next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources for emerging writers, like virtual events where your questions are answered by leading Hollywood professionals, it's also the industry's number one script coverage service. With incredible 72-hour turnaround and format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, We Screenplay is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career, from first-time writers to Oscar winners. So if your script is ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of their real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay wants to help. Head to wescreenplay.com to find out more or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and dare I say beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Can you remember how it came to be that the script went from Having these kind of moments where Phil attempts to almost outrun the loop, he travels a little bit. I, I think, yeah, he, he at one point hops on a flight and goes to see his mother, I believe. How did you end up establishing the idea of the blizzard wrecking not just their route out of town, but also taking down the long distant phone lines? Like the sense of isolation these additions create kind of really cranks up uh, the, the sense of frustration and the sense of being trapped with Phil in a place and with people that he looks down upon. It's, it's kind of another sort of addition to the torture for him. Can you remember how that came to be? Because that wasn't, that wasn't the case in, in the earliest iterations of this film, was it? No, when I started, I was just brainstorming on how hard would he try to escape? And I would just ask myself that question. There's a period of time where he just wants to get out of town and he doesn't, he, maybe he thinks whatever's going on is because he's in town and he just needs to leave. But between the blizzard thing and um, just a lot of coincidences, he would, he would steal a truck and drive until the blizzard stopped him. And then he'd unload the truck where he had put some snowmobiles and he'd drive the snowmobiles. And at some point he actually made it to the airport and there was an airplane and he was able to get on it and he has to teach himself to fly. So there's an awful lot of crashing of the airplane over and over and over and over again. <laughs> and he finally gets it together and gets back to, to his home in Pittsburgh. And he goes to visit his mom because he's lonely. And the first thing she does is start 
into things that she says to him that she says every single time he visits. How come you haven't gotten a new job? Hey, don't get your feet on the sofa, blah, blah, blah. And it's like <laughs> listening to these repetitions in your own life, in your family life. I thought that was uh, useful. Um, and there were a few things like that. What became clear is, is we needed some clear rules and we didn't need people to be thinking, wait, if the rule is this, then it's that. And um, it was just from draft after draft when I was working with Harold that we started saying, okay, let's say we, he can't leave town. Whatever he's doing is stuck here. And that helped uh, just sort of keep everything contained. I think it, it just happened like that. Nobody predicted what would work or what wouldn't. We just kept trying things. You talked earlier about, uh, you know, really working with Harold to make this the worst day ever for Phil. If he's going to have to relive one day over and over again, let's make it as bad as it can be. Um, a few of the things that kind of make up the structure of this day that we're going to see repeated over and over, a few of them are in the early draft. Like Needlenose Ned, for example, he's he's in the first draft right down to his annoying bing sound that he makes. Um, how did you decide on the ingredients of the day that Phil was going to be forced to relive? And, and at what point did each of them enter the fray? You know, the conversation with the woman at the hotel who asked about the weather, the puddle that Phil keeps stepping into, all that stuff. Um, again, a lot of that was trial and error, just what fit, because you can put in whatever is the most entertaining. Um, the, I had actually had an experience with an insurance salesman where after I had finally decided the meeting was over, he was still talking to me and I couldn't get him to shake off my finger and um, <laughs> walked out to the car and he followed me up to the car, still talking. And I sat in my car and he was still talking to me and I closed the door and he was still talking to me. And I slowly started rolling up the window because he was still talking to me. And I was thinking, that's the guy. <laughs> who you would not be want to be stuck in a small town with. And so that's, <laughs> that's where that character came from. Um, I had to, told Harold as he was trying to get inside my head and how I constructed this thing. I told him that it was similar the way I thought of it to um, um, Kubler-Ross's stages of death and dying, not in a literal way, although you could make an argument, but that Phil would go through a bunch of stages. I remember I was thinking of of the vampire Lestat and and uh, the the Anne Rice books, and which was one of the things that got me thinking about this. And I was thinking these people they're they're just like real humans, only they're vampires. A few of the rules are different, like the blood eating and not going out in the day and being able <laughs> to live forever. And I was thinking, well, if you could live forever you'd probably go through several years where you loved being one kind of person, living the town, on the town, parties all night. And after a while, you get bored with it and you just want people to leave you alone and you go off by yourself for another 20 years. And then, you know, and it would go like that. And so I figured that Phil was going in stages of dealing with how how what he was going to do with his life, what his life consisted of. And that helped you be able to feed in what happened where, which which things were bothering Phil and how he dealt with those as he went along. So mostly it was just front-loaded misery. And then we saw <laughs> how he would slowly start having to avoid that or how those things would start to drive him crazy. The structure of the film that you mentioned there with these stages, 
It, it's so fascinating. Phil at first is obviously confused, then exasperated by the situation. Then he leans into nihilism and kind of reckless abandon, as you say, like partying like there's no tomorrow, because obviously for him, there isn't. But then that kind of gives way to a kind of type of grief and a desperation for escape, which leads him to, well, suicide many times. And it's it's played for laughs, but it's also, you know, there's a real dark underlying to that. I, I, I do want to point, point out that when we did the musical... Um, uh, Tim Minchin um, did uh, an amazing uh, rework of that scene as a musical. He wrote a song called Hope, and it's a very, very passionate, heartfelt song about, you know, if it didn't work yesterday, you've got to keep hold on to hope and hope that it works out tomorrow. That's what keeps you going. But the whole thing is in reference to committing suicide. <laughs> hey, if if you tried to electrocute yourself today, don't give up hope. You can always hang yourself tomorrow. Um, so it's super dark and yet very funny, and and um, it, it really captures that moment well. Anyway, a little aside there. Yeah. Well, it it didn't surprise me at all to to find out that that stuff was all influenced by by kind hearts and coronets which yeah i love that film oh, so good did you have any pushback at all though from the studio on these darker elements i can imagine again you know we talked about how like they saw this as a as hollywood entertainment did, did you have any pushback to the number of suicides and the the sort of darker elements of this um i i have to say i was not privy to any of that Either if those conversations happen, nobody um, asked me to do anything about it. I have a feeling th uh, uh, that um, our executive at Sony was excellent and had our back and tr kept trying to get things through. Uh, so she was an advocate and that was helpful. I don't recall them pushing back on that one. They did push back on how long he was in the time loop where in my mind, it had to be at least one lifetime. And in their mind, it couldn't be more than two weeks. For some reason, <laughs> that was all they could get their heads around and thought people's heads would explode and it wouldn't work. And Harold is an experienced um, producer as well in his creative work. And I think he knew how to navigate that to get that through appropriately. <laughs> On that topic, actually, Danny, have you paid attention to the kind of debates online about exactly how long uh, Phil has been reliving February 2nd by the time we get to the end of the film? There, there are a lot of people who've kind of tried to work it out based on many factors, you know, the, the number of days that we physically see on screen, uh, the number of suicides that Phil mentions in passing. They've worked out based on the concept that it takes 10,000 hours to master any skill. They worked out exactly from all the different skills he masters what that would have equated to in, in days, months, years. The figure that people tend to come out with is around 80 years. Is that about right? Does that seem, seem accurate to you for, for whatever it counts? I know it's not really important to the story you're telling. You know, what I worked on was how to make it feel like a really long time so that it doesn't feel like something that could just be solved like that. It was about living through that experience that teaches him to get to the next spot. It wasn't like he started thinking, okay, what am I going to have to do to myself to make myself a better person? He wasn't trying to be a better person. He was just trying to get from day one to day two to day three. 
I, I found it amusing. I wasn't trying to make it add up to anything. It, it just had to feel like a very, very, very long time and longer than you might have expected. I think in Harold's mind, it was maybe about 20 years and it sort of worked out like that. But I had a very explicit um, scene where Phil wanted to keep track of his days like a prisoner might. And, and he couldn't put hash marks in the wall because they wouldn't be there the next day. But I, I realized that like when I read a book, uh, when I often, when I read a book, I would dog ear a page. So I'd know where I left off. Uh, my wife who's a librarian takes offense at such things, uh, but she can remember <laughs> the last page that she read. She just sort of makes a point of remembering and then closing the book. I figured, okay, I guess people can do that. And so I, I invented this very, very long bookcase in the bed and breakfast. And every morning Phil would read one page. And that way you could see sort of hovering around the very beginning of the bookcase every time we see him in a montage. And then little by little, we see him move a little farther and a little farther. And if you think that a book is maybe, let's say, 365 pages long, then when he finishes one book, it's been a year. And at some point, we see him get to the very end of the bookcase. And so it just feels like a heavy, heavy weight of time. And then the depression of him sort of walking back to the beginning of the bookcase and starting over. Well, in order to appease the studio, Harold took that out. So it wasn't explicit. And there's no voiceover telling you he slept with this many women or accomplished these skills. So it's really just up to the viewer to play the little parlor game and satisfy themselves. <laughs> and there is no right answer, really. Um, we talked earlier about Risa and the sort of fleshing out of that character. Can you describe for the audience... Yeah, sort of where she began as a character, where she ended up, and sort of what some of the rationale was for the changes that she went on. Um, she's su substantially the same character as when she started. I wanted her to be uh, independent, an independent thinker, a professional woman, which doesn't seem like such a big deal now. But even in 1992 or whenever uh, I, I was writing it, it, it made sense to lean into that to make a point. Um, I think at the beginning, Rita was really just there as a signal to let us know that Phil has crossed over somehow. When she falls in love with him, that is the signal that he has become lovable and something has changed within him. And that's how we understand that he got out of the time loop. I think little at a time gave her a little bit more of a character and more to do. And in um, in the the musical, totally, totally leaned into it and made her a very interesting, substantial post fairy tale character. Where I think Harold leaned into the fairy tale idea. That wasn't really the way I looked at it. I was more sci-fi, but he looked into <laughs> the fairy tale. He saw the frog prince as being an allegory, and he even wrote in some scenes that thankfully never made it into the movie. Uh, <laughs> I think he would agree. But it had the students at the local school putting on a play of the Frog Prince. And somehow 
that would either help explain the movie to us or hit us over the head so hard that it would just become saccharine and unpleasant. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, I think he figured out where the edges were during editing or screenings or something. And I was quite, quite glad that didn't happen, but she was a fairy tale princess. She was lit like a fairy tale princess and, and was an object (laughs) of desire for, for Phil. And in the musical, um, we go past that and have a character who, perhaps grew up thinking that she was going to be a fairy tale princess, but found out that men really weren't worth it. (laughs) And it was a more nuanced position. (laughs) Phil ultimately realizes that um, he needs to become the invisible hand of this town, quietly removing pain wherever I could find it. And yeah, in this draft, he makes balloon animals for children in a hospital, and he becomes this kind of altruist. And uh, he also kind of goes about learning all these skills that are going to impress Rita, but from a place of honesty and from a place of authenticity, not a place of trying to kind of trick her into, you know, falling in love with him or whatever. Um, We talked at the top about loneliness and the kind of need for Phil to realize that the only meaningful thing in life is our connection with each other. Why was this arc the arc that Phil had to go on? It sounds like from the very beginning that that was the transformation that he needed to undergo. Was there a particular kind of like specialty or message about that 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 you really loved that was the reason for this being the end point and the thing that would break the time loop for him? Not necessarily. I was really uh, pretending like I was that guy. And if I had that life, what would I do? And what would it feel like? And, And what would come next? And I had remembered reading something about um, EST, the uh, pop psychology um, uh, method, I guess. And I'd heard it referred to once as the first half is emptying you of everything you are and who you think you are, and everything after is refilling it back up with a new you. And um, I, I... I think that was somewhat on my mind that when he got to the point of killing himself, that was erasing everything that was Phil. And everything that was Phil was a very self-centered person. He was only looking at how he could please himself and how he could get out of this terrible situation and how he should live his life and what he can get away with and all that. And I figured after he was empty, what's he going to do? And the first thing he does is he listens to some music and and realizes that there is civilization beyond him and starts to indulge in, in things like that. And slowly he starts to realize there are other people in the world and maybe they have <laughs> needs and desires. And it's the first time that he thinks outside of himself for somebody else. And at least for a while, that seems to improve his life make him a better person, make people react as if he's a better person. And it feels like a transformation has taken place. So I wasn't trying to manipulate the story to make him into a good guy because he isn't completely selfish. Um, But it kind of went in that direction and it all made sense. So stuck with it. Yeah. (laughs) The rest was history. Um, as you mentioned at the top, there there was sort of an original ending where you kind of ended with this this punchline of Rita rejecting Phil and then getting stuck in a time loop of her own. 
Was that to like set up a potential sequel that you were perhaps thinking ahead to, or was it you're shaking your head, which makes me think it's perhaps just a note of here we go again that seemed like good fun? It seemed like good fun, and it seemed like an unexpected little twist at the end because it was hard to end that that movie. I, I it was all just fun all the way through in unexpected ways, and that's what was so great about it because you think you take its measure and it keeps twisting out. Um, and when it twists out, it also goes in inside for the viewer. So that all was great. But how do you end that? And uh, yeah, it was just a glib ending. Never wanted to do a sequel. I, I've been particularly uh, clueless and stupid as a business person where <laughs> everyone else would have like made sure that they rode this success to the next, to the next, to the next. The Groundhog Day cinematic universe. Uh, yeah, yeah. I didn't watch my own movie. I didn't learn my lessons. Um, but I didn't, I, I still, that's just my value system. I figured in a way it is its own sequel and anything else is really just trying to milk it for something. And um, I would rather do a different movie or take the same story and re-explore it in a different medium, which is why I did the musical. Um, so you could go deeper and you could explore different things, but you didn't change the story. You didn't pretend like, oh, now Phil's all grown up and he has kids and he's got to deal with this issue and that, that bored the hell out of me and, uh, wasn't interested and have told people so. And <laughs> the studio probably does not love me for that, but oh, well. <laughs> when the ending changed and when all of these changes were kind of implemented across all these rewrites that took it from you know, what we've described earlier is, is more of an indie feel, perhaps, to something more resembling Hollywood entertainment. Being kind of a young writer at the time, did it take you a moment to reconcile with those changes as you were kind of working through them? Like, I know you've obviously been effusive in your praise and admiration for Harold all this time. He's obviously a comic legend. You were involved every step of the way in the rewrites. It wasn't like the script was taken off your hands and, and remolded without you. Did you have to kind of trust in Harold that these changes rule okay and that this is part of the development of the piece? I guess I didn't have any choice. It's just sort of the way things worked. Everybody was very friendly and kindly towards me, but ultimately Harold had to make a Harold Ramis movie. There were things about a Harold Ramis movie that I was actually afraid of. Um, I was afraid that it would become an adolescent animal house. I was afraid that the really, really good, smart ideas that were in there would get thrown aside in order to just exploit something that he and the studio were both very familiar with. And I think he was sort of struggling at the time between wanting to do something really breakout original and wanting to do what he knew how to do. And so, yeah, I was actually very anxious that it would... Um, you know, this is my first big movie. It was a chance to really shine and show off. And I didn't want him to mess it up. You know, it was very, <laughs> very arrogant point of view. I mean, I should have been going, oh, my God, I'm working with Harold Ramis. Oh, my God, I'm working with Bill Murray. I'm the luckiest guy who ever was. But and I did feel that way. I really did. But at the same time, I was like, what are they going to do? I felt like I had to protect the things that I liked about the script and not let them become easy Hollywood. So I was uh, I was kind of nervous about it up until people started reacting to the movie, really. Even on opening night, I was like, uh, he did Harold Ramis it, you know, because, for instance, I saw I didn't want to turn the town of Punxsutawney into a joke. 
I, I, I wanted everybody to go through this as if it were a real thing. And, and Harold had to make it a little bit more arch in order to make it the worst day of, of Phil's life. The characters had to live up to his very low expectations of how simple-minded <laughs> they would be, etc. And I, I originally just saw that as exploiting these poor people to real town and turning them into comic things. But after a while, I kind of understood what Harold was doing, and that made the drama that much richer and deeper. And, you know, a lot of it I came to appreciate as seen through other people's eyes, how, how they were able to understand the movie. I was like, oh, they got what I wanted out of it. So I guess Harold did a great job. And the, <laughs> and the fact that it's been around for so long is a uh, testament to that. It's basically impossible to imagine, in, in the cinematic form of this story anyways, um, Phil, kind of this character being played by anyone but Bill Murray. Um, like It's clear that kind of once you had him on board, you really lent into his talents and his delivery. There are, there are multiple lines in this that just seem kind of laser crafted to his particular dryness. Uh, the one that always kind of stands out for me is uh, after the car chase, when the officers come over to arrest him and he winds down the window and says, three cheeseburgers, two large fries, as if he's, as if he's at a drive-thru. Um, prior to him coming on board, though, Danny, I understand that you had envisioned the character as, as like a, a young Jimmy Stewart type. Um, I also understand that Tom Hanks was someone that you, know, you, you thought could be an early candidate for, for the type of actor who could fill the role. Um, obviously, it all shook out pretty, pretty well with, with Bill in the end, but um, what do you think the, the Hanks version of this film would have looked like? Do you think a Hanks Groundhog Day could have worked? Well, Hanks actually said after the movie came out, he said, I was right to turn it down. And the reason he said is because he has a reputation for being a good guy. People see him that way. So even if he started out as a nasty, people would sort of say, yeah, he's going to change. With Bill, you don't know. You don't know what's going to yeah, happen with Bill, even in real life. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> and that made him a, a actually a, a very, very good choice for the character, um, really. Um, uh, at the time, I didn't know whether it would work with him. I was afraid that he and Harold would just do an, another adolescent comedy. Um, but they both wanted more, and they pushed the edges some. Um, there were sometimes when uh, I remember Harold rewrote my one of the waking up diner, you know, going going into the parlor scenes and where he throws the chubby man up against the wall and says, don't mess with me, pork chop. I, I said, Harold, that's isn't that a little mean? Isn't that a little too soon to be that mean? And he said, Bill can do it. Bill can be as nasty as he wants to be, and we still like him. He gets away with it. So his um, ability and knowledge of working with Bill was very, very useful in getting the right tone. Yeah, I actually found myself thinking about that in the segment of the movie where where Phil is kind of, well, he's essentially manipulating Rita into sex. Like he's he's taking her on an infinite amount of dates learning each time the correct thing to say to win her over. Now, that in reality, I suppose, is a manipulation that might be regarded today as toxic. But, you know, the combination of the lightness of Bill's performance and, well, the script's underlining of it being kind of pure fantasy, pure fun, uh, you know, 
it comes across like you don't interpret it as toxic. You know not to take it seriously. And that was the the very first thing that I wrote when I came up with the idea of a guy repeating the same day. I instinctively knew what the rules were in terms of he he remembers but nobody else does and that sort of thing. And I wrote that date scene, picking up picking up the date scene. And as soon as I wrote that, I was like, I've got a movie. That's a movie. No one's seen that before, and it's a lot of fun. Um, Bill pulls it off perfectly and it is hard to imagine anyone else in the role, but that was one of the delights of doing the musical. We did write it to be a little bit, not Bill Murray, Bill Murray, sort of laconic. He doesn't break into song and, and that would have felt a little wrong. Um, but also (laughs) people bring their Bill Murray expectations to a groundhog day show of any kind. And we needed to somehow differentiate the fill so people would just forget it. And we had several workshops with different fills and ultimately um, got to have Andy Carl, who is an amazing Broadway actor. But um, they all worked. Everyone in the workshops, all the different fills, we went along the journey with all of them. They each brought their own little kind of nastiness to the role and and made it somebody who who we would follow. So... Um, I would say, yes, Bill was great casting, and I couldn't imagine the movie with anyone else at this point. But I can imagine the story being told with slightly different fills, because we're all Phil, and a lot of different people would work in that role. Plus the fact that my original script was really about a guy in his late 20s, like I was, kind of stuck in his profession, not able to get to the next step, feeling stuck in his life. And when they cast Bill, now it's a 40-year-old man at a sort of a slightly more pathetic midlife place, um, (laughs) stuck and unable to move forward. And it occurs to me if it had been an older guy, it it could have worked as well. It's a slightly different story, and yet it resonates for us. The genre that it spawned, you know, this sort of micro genre of time loop movies is pretty astonishing. And, you know, it includes some of my favorite movies of recent decades. You know, Edge of Tomorrow, for example, is an action film I adore. And I don't know that it would have existed without Groundhog Day. When you look at the storytellers who've who've taken, taken the torch, they've taken the baton from you and Groundhog Day, what are some of your favorites? Like, which of the films do you look at as being kind of influenced by Groundhog Day in that same kind of time loop well, setting? There are, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to name names, although I will say I will name um, Palm Springs. Be- is, yeah. that, is that what it's called? I'll name it if that's what it's called. Um, yeah, Palm Springs. <laughs> I had imagined, I never wanted to do a sequel, but when I thought about it, I did come up with what idea I would do. This was like, 30 years, 20 years ago. But the idea was to have a couple going through Groundhog Day. And if it's a couple, instead of one person, now you have a really good metaphor for relationships. Uh, imagine a, a a couple that's been together for years. They don't all grow at the same rate. They don't all change at the same rate. And, and it makes for an interesting uh, dynamic. And Palm Springs was the first one that showed more than one person going through the loop at the same time and what that did to their relationship in a way. Um, so that's what I'll say about that. Other than that, as I said, when when I first came up with the idea, I knew there were a lot of kinds of movies that could be made out of it. And I chose mine. And um, kind of since I knew I wasn't going to go back to the well and do it again. 
um, I'm delighted that somebody else picked up the ball, everybody, <laughs> that it became a, a new way of telling a story that they could find an angle on that would be interesting. And I've, I, I, I know I haven't seen them all. I've seen some of them that were such ripoffs of Groundhog Day. I mean, it was very, very poorly disguised. And 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 then they <laughs> they refer to it within the movie so that then they can call it an homage. Um, yeah, but many yeah. more people like Edge of Tomorrow, which also bore a lot in common with a video game and the idea of getting to the next level after you failed at the first one over and over again. It's a similar metaphor and um, has its own kind of resonances and I think uh, worked really well. And everybody who's sort of just seen it as an opportunity to try something new, I think that's great. I, I enjoy that. And the fact that they reference Groundhog Day, that's nice. <laughs> it's a nice thing. <laughs> Everyone says, oh, Groundhog Day on a train, Groundhog Day in space, Groundhog Day in the future, Groundhog Day is a <laughs> scary movie. You know, all these things. That's ah, fun. It's fun for me. Well, as I say, Danny, it's such a special film and I'm so glad we've been able to make this happen. It's been two years in the making, as I mentioned. Um, what do you say, just finally, to to kind of wrap this conversation up? What do you say to all the people who hold this film dear, who've, for whom it's been a part of their lives for 30 years and uh, who will be returning to it this Groundhog Day on the day this episode airs? Have you got a message for those people? Well, I'm delighted that it's evolved as an annual kind of celebration. There already was a Groundhog Day, but it had nothing to do with reflecting on your life and time loops and what you can do to break out of them in the coming year. Um, but it's been around so long, people get confused. They forget that that's not part of the original <laughs> holiday. It's fine with me. Yeah. I love that yeah. it, it's a very sort of unencumbered, be as silly as you want in the middle of winter, gather with friends and do something goofy. I mean, all of that is is a very good lesson of how to live a good life. So I'm pleased to be uh, in any way associated with that. Well, that's a beautiful note to end things on. Danny, thanks so much for your time today. Congrats again on the 30th anniversary of this film. And uh, yeah, it's been a delight chatting with you. Thanks, Al. Happy Groundhog Day. Happy Groundhog Day, Danny. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. <laughs>